So a lot tonight, a lot. What was up for conversation, for discussion? Where did it land? What would you like to talk about? I have something that I would like clarification on, and that is karma. You mentioned that everybody's karma is their own, basically. Their pain is their own. And uh, I have a lot of people in my life right now who are suffering, brother, mom, like a lot of people. And I tend to internalize it, you know, and suffer over Even though I'm feeling great, I internalize their pain. I don't know if that's related to what you were talking about or... I think this thing is about, you know, when, like, for example, if somebody rips you off or says something that's really abusive or kicks you in the shins, you know, our immediate response is, you know, to try and get back at them. So this reflection has to do more with the recognition that if they've done that, they're going to receive the results of that independent of whether you do anything or not, okay? I think what you're talking about I can totally relate to because I, I know from myself... This has been decades of my own work of how to be in relationship with people that I care deeply about and how to have the right boundaries around their pain. Because it's like I didn't have any appropriate boundaries. Whatever they were feeling, I would feel, you know. And so that's that's not the same. This has to do, I think, for me, it had to do more with understanding how to ground myself and how to have more, how to be careful about what I let in. Because I was just like a sponge, you know, anything was going on, I'd feel it, you know. I mean, I, I was, it was remarkable when I was, a, when I was a teenager, you know, I'd go into a space where people were getting stoned, and I was high in an instant, you know, I didn't have to do anything, I was just totally stoned. And so I just didn't, I couldn't ground myself when I was in certain kinds of spaces, and so I just picked up everything that was going on around me. And so it's taken me a lot of learning to know how to not do that, how to hold my own energy in other kinds of environments. And when I'm around people that I care about a lot, you know, I completely feel their pain, and which is different from just empathizing. It's like, what's the word for it? Fusing. And so how to hold my own space and empathize but not lose my own energy field in another person's energy field. It's been big learning. Big, big learning. Does that help, Scott? Yes. Yeah. I think for me in that type of situation, because I've been dealing with quite a bit of that too, is that my heart is is feeling heavy and I want to help these people. And then my head is telling me, to hell with that. Why? What's hell, why is it to saying to hell with that? Because it seems like when I am speaking from my heart, I, I want to like encompass everybody and, and save the world. And then when my mind clicks in, I realize, no, you save yourself. Marty, there's a there's there's two elements to that. There's a wisdom element of that, and then there's a like a I can't cope with all of this element to that. You know. And they're both present in that. And so what's helpful is to distill the wisdom component of that and to soften around the the hard edge of, like, I actually can't cope with that. And so that you've got the wisdom component that's operating without the kind of the hardness that's contracting. And you're not going to be able to figure that out with your head. You know, how do you resolve that conflict is not something you're going to figure out with your head. Well, that's why I usually let my heart lead, and I usually end up doing getting myself over-trained right. and not letting my wisdom that just slow down, Marty, and 
Right, because because there is a wisdom component in that voice that you need to be able to honor. Totally, you need to honor that. Now, I think there's a lot of goodness in being able to give and to serve and to help because that's a there's a huge thing about feeling our connection, feeling our value, feeling our, our intelligence, our creativity, our goodness when we're able to help. Yeah. So that's there's it's it's a really important thing to be able to give. You know? But it's really tough in the in the recovery business because you feel like uh, the, the person goes back out and you feel unappreciated. So, you know, this is an interesting thing about when we give and we've got expectations. Right. You know? Right. And so, you know, certainly most of us uh, give with some expectations, but the more conscious we are of those expectations and the more we're able to self-regulate, get the appreciation we need in places where we can get it, then we can continue to give and not feel so burnt out, you know? I mean, I'm the same way. I, I would love to be able to teach the Dhamma and have absolutely no expectations on any level under any circumstances about what it was that came back. And the reality is, is, is that it doesn't quite work that way. I mean, I'm actually in a situation where there's certain things that I need, both physically and practically, but also emotionally. I respond much better when people are interested in what I'm doing, when they express appreciation for what I, for the fact that I show up. You know, when people put energy in and receive what I have to say, then I feel it. You know, if people don't ever say thanks for coming or you know that helped or there's no reciprocity. It's hard to stay continually giving when you don't feel anything coming back. So my job is to continue to find ways where I'm nourishing myself, but also to let people know that actually it's actually a two-way road. You know? Yes, buddy. I mean, I don't have teenagers, so you're going to have to speak with the other people here who have lived through teenagers and survived, because, you know, it's quite a, quite a time. But I think what's needed is, is that you need a support system independent of your kids, you know, that actually is able to hear you and offer to you and affirm to you the stuff that you need affirming. Because to expect a teenager to do that, I think, is probably a lot. And so, you know, what happens, I think, is, is that we end up with too many expectations on too few people, and then we end up feeling let down because it's not possible for them to fulfill that. So just think about the people you know and who else could be an ally or a support for you or a person that you could talk to. And You know, the clearer we are about the needs that we have, then the more intelligent we are about being able to get those needs met. Where we get mixed up is we're not clear about what our needs are, and then they end up being dished out onto the wrong people. There's no way they can meet them. You know? And then we feel frustrated or angry or resentful or burnt out because we're putting ourselves in a situation where there's no way our needs can be met. That's a setup. Don't do that. You know, But they're your kids, so you need to be in relationship with them. But who else can you bring into your sphere that can nourish in a way that is realistic and appropriate? Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. So what are some baby steps to get I think the baby steps are is to be able to start learning to 
know what you're feeling, know what you're needing, and to give permission that those things are okay. It's totally okay to need things. And the clearer you are about what it is you need, then the better chance you are of being able to put yourself in situations where you can ask for it. I mean, as nuns, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, it was such a project for us to be able to even consider the fact that we had needs. You know? It's like, you know, our vocation is not to have needs. <laughs> so to us to be able to think about the fact that we had needs and to verbalize them was like years of work. Because we'd taken on this identity that that was somehow not something that we were supposed to have. It's big work. And I'm sure, you know, everybody in their own way has got some similar version of it. You know, moms are not supposed to have needs. Dads are not supposed to have needs. Competent men are not supposed to have needs. Heaven help us. You know, but the truth is, is, is that we all have needs. You know, part of being human is, is that we have needs. And, you know, the clearer we are about what they are, then the better chance we're going to have of being able to address them. Would you go back to the glass of water hmm. and, the, and the, the syrup and how whether it's pleasant or unpleasant is just a certain flavor of life and the, the water, glass of water, is actually like myself realizing that these other flavors are just flavors and pleasant or unpleasant, they're out there forever and try to stay in the glass of water. I mean, the flavors of pleasant and unpleasant are going to arise and they'll shift, you know. So one day you're going to think cigarettes is lovely and the next day cigarettes are gross, Okay. So pleasant and unpleasant changes even with the same object, okay? It depends on, you know, a whole variety of things that happens as to how you feel something is pleasant and how you feel something is unpleasant. But it's great to see that pleasant and unpleasant arises. Pleasant and unpleasant is not fixed into the object. Pleasant and unpleasant changes. And that who you are is not those qualities. It's something else. That is amazing. I mean, even to even think like that is amazing. Because it opens up a kind of whole huge vastness of, well, if I'm not pleasant and unpleasant, and I'm not my body, and I'm not the things that I think, what am I? You know, so the shit and the stories and the drama and the whatevers is because of not right relationship to the syrups, basically. That's all. I need it simply put to me sometimes like that. <laughs> but it makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, it still makes vast amount of sense. Yeah. But it's, it's right. in simplicity. Right. And so then, you know, it's like, all right, so we didn't have right relationship with the syrups, so we can develop right relationship with the syrups. But that doesn't mean that the water is somehow wrong or bad or spoiled or tainted or un- unredeemable. The water is totally fine. It always has been fine. It's clear. It's pure and unflavored. And that's not usually the way we think about ourselves. We think I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a hopeless thing. You know, I'm a not a hopeless thing. I've got thousands of hours of meditation I've got to do before I'm going to be able to understand anything. We conceive of ourselves as a syrup, not as a glass of water. Yes? So does that mean that you want to form a relationship to the conversion and the desire to some degree? I think what's coming up for me in this one is that I find that I, that I try not to go into the version of the desire. That I don't 
there's some person trying to be neutral, and then all of a sudden neutral kind of turns into numb, has like a sense of overwhelm. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be neutral because I don't want to avoid these other things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's too much. So what can happen for us, particularly when we pick up the idea of non-harm, is that we form a view about what that means. And what we think non-harming means is that we're not allowed to feel angry. We're not allowed to feel desire. And so rather than feel anger, we shut anger out. And we shut desire out. Well, one of the things about anger, which is really important to know, is, is that anger has two qualities to it. One is an incredibly protective quality that helps establish clear boundaries. It's really useful. And the other quality of anger is the intent to harm, to hurt, to humiliate, to put down. Okay, And that's really important to recognize that it's not okay to act from that. But it's totally allowed to feel that. And so one needs to understand there's a difference between feeling and acting. And if you disallow feeling, you've dug yourself a grave. Because part of us feel the stuff that we don't want to feel. And then if we can't feel the stuff that we feel, then we kill part of the stuff that is there that's feeling. And that's the numbness. That's the disassociated numbness, spaced out feeling of, I don't want to show up for this because it's in contradiction to who I think I should be. That is a path of death. That's not a path of fullness and aliveness and engagement. And so the third foundation of mindfulness is this golden key that says you are allowed to feel everything that you feel, even if it's the stuff you think you're not supposed to feel. It is all allowed. Now, one of the things that happens with meditation, and it scares people, you know, because they come to meditate and think, I'm going to get calmer and cooler and more tranquil and more peaceful and more wise and more skillful. And they start meditating and they feel more angry. They feel more incredibly obsessed with sexual desire. They get dull and sleepy. They can't stay awake. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is, is that the repressive mechanisms of all the stuff that's been squashed and stuffed and buried and, and compartmentalized is all of a sudden coming up. And the stuff that we didn't know was there, but was all along, is stuff that we're seeing. And it can be frightening until one actually recognizes that's actually a sign of health. It's not a sign of gone wrong. It's actually a sign that your life force energies are coming into present time, and you have to deal with them. But that's why it's helpful to be around other people who've been meditating for a while, because unless you've had that experience, you can think like, it's all going backwards. It's getting worse rather than getting better. And to recognize or to know that that's actually a sign of progress. You're just not looking in the right way. I mean, I think for me, a lot of it is a fear around not being skillful enough to handle the emotions. You know, I mean, my very biggest example is a very set meditation where I have these moments where, you know, I live with my mother. I love her, but she's the most triggering and difficult person in my life, and I have to interact with her on a daily basis. And so, you know, like, how do I practice loving kindness when all of this anger is arising in me? And so for me, there's so much of a, it's almost like the numbing in itself can feel like a, or that neutral that turns into a numbing can feel like giving up because it's about, it's about not being able to establish the boundary and it's walking away. Because for me, that's the only piece 
So first of all, there has to be the recognition that if you're not actually kicking your mother, you're not actually shouting at your mother, you're not killing your mother, you know, that actually is a form of metta. <laughs> so you don't need to be oozing loving kindness and have your thoughts absolutely crystal clear this is the divine form of mother incarnate. If you're not engaging in harmful action or harmful speech, that is metta. I mean, let me just give you a small example. Some things happened, a series of things happened. I was in the monastery, and I was furious, absolutely furious. I was so furious. I went on retreat for three weeks, and the senior nun who was there at the time, she said, how can I support you? I said, don't have anybody come to talk to me. I don't want to see anybody, and I don't even care if the monastery burns down. I don't want to know. Leave me alone. She says, that's fine. I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so I was on my walking path, walking up and down on my walking path, furious morning, noon, and night for three weeks. It was amazing amazing experience because I didn't need to cathart. I didn't need to do anything. I didn't need to go anywhere. I didn't need to shut it out. I was with this rage until it burned itself cool. Totally amazing experience. Very important experience. Particularly for me because I had such a twisted relationship with anger. I was terrified to feel angry. I thought something horrible would happen if I got angry. Anger was an absolutely scary thing for me. And I had all kinds of reasons why that was that way for me. So I was enraged, and that was my practice, to just be with it. Now, I was on retreat, so I wasn't having to interact with people, you know. But, you know, that's what was going on, and that's what I needed to attend to. But you have to be... I mean, you also have to know what you're equal to. And so it's like, you know, with some people, they can't they can't do that. They'll either implode or they'll explode. And so you need to actually be careful what your actual capacity is rather than your idea about where you should be with that and be in current time, in real time, you know, just checking to see what you're actually up for. Because, to you know, to lock somebody up on retreat for three weeks in a state like that, where they're not moving from their kuti, if they, you know, they didn't have a practice, that it's <laughs> not so easy just to stay with it. Just stay with it. Just stay with it until it burns itself cool. But possible. Let's close there. <laughs>